Our passage today is coming out of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1, starting at verse number 26. And here's how it reads. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel approached, appeared to her and said, greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I'll say that again. For nothing is impossible with God. Mary responded, I'm the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. A few days later, Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea, to the town where Zechariah lived. And she entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. And at the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leaped within her. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. You are blessed because you believed that the Lord would do what he said. The title of my message today is called The Greatest Hope. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I ask today, Lord, that your presence and your power and your anointing would be here to make your word alive and active in the lives of everyone listening. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated there. The, the, the Christmas story is a very fascinating story. Obviously, it's the birth of our Savior, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if you ever look at the story, there's some background to it. If you ever considered the condition of Israel at the time of the birth of our Savior, because when you consider Israel, Israel had a glorious past. If you think about Israel, um, God promised Abraham that out of your, out of your seed would birth a nation and your descendants would be as numerous as the, the sand on the sea or the stars in the sky. And that's exactly what God did. He promised that he would bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. And that's exactly what he did. Eventually, there were kings in Israel and God raised up kings, great kings like David and, and Solomon. And, and there was this long succession of kings in Israel, even after the nation split into Judah and, and, and Israel, there was still the succession of kings. However, by the time Christ comes along, or the time of Christ's birth, this succession of kings had long passed. It had been about 600 years before, um, since there was a king in Israel in the line of David, about 600 years. But not only were there the succession of kings over the succession of prophets was over as well. It had been 400 years since the book of Malachi was written 
and there was no prophet in Israel for 400 years. Imagine being in a place where you were used to hearing the word of God being declared by prophets in a long line of succession, and then all of a sudden for 400 years, there's no prophecy. There's no word of the Lord being declared in the nation of Israel. This is what was going on in the nation of Israel. The glory of Israel was truly in the past. It was in the past. To make it further, by the time of Christ, even though the Jews were living in Israel, they were not living under their own rule. They were living under Roman rule. And they did have a king, but the king was Herod. In fact, Herod's name was on the temple because he had rebuilt the temple. And Herod was not even a Jew. Herod was appointed by Rome. So here it is, the nation of Israel, God's people, yet they are under Roman rule with a king who doesn't even believe what they believe. By the time we get to the story, even the people that went to the temple, it was not something they did with excitement or expectation. It was just something they did because that's what we do. We go to the temple, we maintain our culture, we offer sacrifices, we do the things that we're supposed to do. But there was no real expectation. There was no hope. Uh, There was nothing exciting about it. It was just ritual. It was like the lights were on, but nobody was home. They had the form of godliness, but they denied the power of it. And this is what the condition of Israel was in. And I'll ask you this question. Have you ever been crushed by life circumstances? Has life ever dealt you such a blow that all you can do is kind of just exist? Yeah, the lights are on, but there's, there's no expectation. And yeah, you come to church and, you know, we sing. So, you, oh, yeah, we're supposed to sing, so I'll sing. And we're supposed to lift our hands. So, yeah, I'll lift my hands. And, oh, yeah, they're doing communion. I'll do that. And, oh, they're praying. I'll bow my head and pray. And, oh, whatever is going on, I'll participate. But there's no expectation of anything happening in your life. No expectation of the presence of God showing up. No expectation of God doing great things in your life anymore. It's just going through the motions. The lights are on, but nobody's home. Hopeless, that's what they were. In fact, sometimes when you ask people how they're doing, you may may have heard this answer. Hey, how you doing today? What's going on in your life? You know what they say? Same old, same old. Anyone heard that one before? Same old, same old. No expectation of God doing anything. This was the condition of Israel, and the fascinating thing is that these were the people of God. These were the people that were serving the one true and living God. These were the Christians, if you will, of the day, professing Christ, understanding who God is, remembering all the wonderful things he's done, but no expectation that he's going to do anything in Israel at this point. In fact, Zechariah, if you look in the story earlier in Luke, he was in, the, he was in the temple and he was offering sacrifices in the temple. Burning incense is what he was supposed to do. It was, it was his lot to do that. And in the presence of him doing that, the angel of the Lord appears, Gabriel, and he says, Zechariah, you've been praying for a son. God has heard your prayer. You're going to have a son. And even Zechariah couldn't even believe it. No expectation. And the fascinating thing is he was like the pastor of the church. Imagine a pastor with no hope. Preaching to a congregation with no hope. What do you expect? This, it's, this is the condition of Israel. And something very interesting happened in this scenario. Something really interesting. Jesus showed up. Fascinating. Here is the birth of the Savior. Jesus showed up. And when the very presence and person of God showed up, everything changed. Just, it's just fascinating. And here's point number one. When Jesus' presence shows up, it lifts your hope, and your expectations. There is something 
about the presence of God that transforms your situation. There is something about God's presence that shifts the atmosphere. That when God shows up, even though your situation might maintain the same, something changes when God's presence shows up. When Jesus shows up, not only does the atmosphere change, but your hope changes. Your hope rises. Your confidence rises because you begin to remember who he is. And this is what happened. Jesus showed up. And when he showed up, their joy started to increase and their, their peace started to increase and their attitude changed, their hope changed, their determination shifted. Everything shifted when God's presence showed up. You see, when Jesus shows up, the expectations go up. In fact, when, when, the, when Mary went to greet Elizabeth, the baby, what, leaped in her belly because at that very moment, even though he was still within the womb of Mary, it was still the presence of the living God. And when she came in contact with the presence of the living God, the baby leaped inside of her. God's presence changes everything, folks. And that's why you need to make a habit of inviting God and being in God's presence. In fact, God invites you into his presence. Look what, what Hebrew says. Chapter 4, verse 15, he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with what? With confidence. Say that again. With what? Confidence. Why? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Here's what God is saying. Come into my presence. Get into my presence. We have 24-7 access to the very throne room of God. We can literally sit at God's feet. We have access to his presence. And when you get into his presence, the atmosphere shifts. Everything changes when you get into God's presence. Everything changes when you get into God's presence. The beautiful thing about when Jesus shows up, by the way, is that he doesn't show up empty-handed either. When he shows up, he shows up with all of heaven's resources with him to assist you in your time of need. I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York. Any Brooklyn people in the house? Brooklyn in the house? <laughs> I'm from Bed-Stuy. Anybody here from Bed-Stuy? All right. If you're from Bed-Stuy, this sounds familiar to you. Bed-Stuy what? Do or die. There we go. All right. That's the old expression. Do or die bed style. That's where I'm from. But in New York City, in the NYPD, when they're communicating with each other, a lot of times what they'll do is they'll use what are called 10 codes. Like you might have heard this before. Like they might say, they'll give a command and say 10-4, which means they, you know, got it, understand, okay, so on and so forth. One of the codes that they'll use is a 10-13. And when a 10-13 is called out, what that means is there's an officer in trouble and that officer needs assistance. And when police officers hear that one of their own is in trouble, they will literally stop everything and come running to the rescue of that officer with the full weight and authority of the NYPD behind them. Well, folks, sometimes what you need to do is you need to send a 1013 to heaven because you're in trouble. And when Jesus hears that 1013, wait a second, one of my own is in trouble, then he comes to your situation with the full weight and power and authority of heaven behind him to rescue you out of your situation. 
That's what he does. He cares about you so much. In fact, in Psalms, it says, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will answer you. See, I love God because God works in present tense. God is not I may or I might or I could be or I'll think about it. No, you call upon me in your day of trouble. You say it, call out a 1013 and I'm coming to rescue you. That's the God we serve. That's the God we serve. Psalms calls him a very present help in time of trouble. This is who we serve, folks. And we can expect God to do things in our life. We have that expectation. We should have that expectation. You know, I find it fascinating. We'll come to church and, and we'll expect to hear good music. And did we hear good music today? Of course we did, right? Amen to that. Thank God for the, for the singing and the leading of worship. And, and we'll come to church and we'll expect to hear a good word. And we expect that. But when's the last time we came simply expecting God to show up? Do we come with the expectation that we want the presence of God to show up more than anything else? If no one ever sang a song, if no one grabbed the mic to preach, but the presence of God would show up. Would we come to church with that expectation of expecting God to show up? Because when he shows up, everything changes. And when God shows up, as he has said, there is nothing that is impossible with him. So I don't care what your situation is today. If God shows up in it, nothing is impossible. If you're going through a, a tough challenge, let me explain to you today, nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is impossible for God. Here's what's interesting about the story, though, as you keep looking at it. The day after Christ was born, nothing changed in Israel. Herod was still the king. They were still under Roman rule. Nothing had changed. They were still in the same condition that they were the day before he was born. Nothing had changed except for one thing. Their perspective was different. See, they were in the same predicament, but their perspective had changed. They were facing the same situation, but now they face it with a different expectation. And that's what God does. Yeah, I'm still in the middle of it, but my expectation is different because I know who he is and I've called upon him and he has promised that if I call upon him, he's going to answer. So yes, the situation is the same, but my expectation is different. And this is what happened in Israel. In fact, the shepherds, after they went to see the baby, they started running all throughout Israel, telling everybody all the stuff that they had seen. And the attitude in Israel had changed, and the, the atmosphere had changed. The, the excitement of Israel was, was, was going up. Their expectation and enthusiasm had changed. Their faith had changed. Their hope had changed. And what's fascinating is all of this happened before any of this came to pass. Don't you understand from the time Jesus was born until the time he started his public ministry, 30 years passed. 30 years. And by the way, I just want to say this to, don't despise the time of preparation. Don't despise that time. You see, because before God can promote you, what he has to do is prepare you. Because if he promotes you before you're prepared, then you can't stand in the place that God wants you to stand in because you're not ready for it. So I need you to understand this. Preparation comes before promotion. I'll say it again. Preparation comes before 
promotion. It's so important to understand that. The problem is preparation doesn't always feel good, all right? It doesn't. It doesn't feel good. But it comes before promotion because God needs you to not just get to a place. God wants you to stand in that place. And so in order for you to stand in the thing that God has called you to, he's got to prepare you for it. Because if you're not ready, you won't be able to stand. And so he won't promote you before time, but understand he's preparing you before he promotes you. And that leads to my second point, where praise comes before. What do I mean by that? Praise comes before the provision is seen. Praise comes before the problem is solved. Praise comes before the promise is fulfilled. Praise comes before you see the way out. Before the answer comes, you offer up praise. If you remember in the story of Peter, the disciples were were out in the boat and a storm arose. I always find it amazing that it seems like every time the disciples got in a boat, they got into a storm. So after a while, I'll be like, Jesus, I ain't getting in that boat no more. (laughs) Forget that. I ain't doing that. This seems like that was always the case. They get in a boat, in the middle of the water, a storm comes. Well, in this particular storm, Jesus wasn't in the boat, but he came walking on the water over the storm. Right, And then Peter looks out and says, Jesus, if that's you, uh, tell me to get out this boat and come walk to you. Notice what Jesus said. He said, come on, Peter. But notice what Jesus didn't do. Jesus didn't calm the storm first and then tell Peter to get out the boat. Peter got out the boat in the middle of the storm. What does that tell us? Here's what it tells us. In the middle of your trial, in the middle of your circumstance, in the middle of your challenge, In the middle of your struggle, when you're in the middle of the fight, that's when you need to start praising him. Even though you don't see the answer, even though you're not even sure how it's going to be answered, all you have to know is I've called upon him and he's promised to rescue me, so I'm going to praise him before I even see the answer. That's what he desires of you to do. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I know he will work it out. And when you have that perspective, you can praise him before you see the answer. Because here's what happens, folks. Praise that comes in the middle of the storm gives you the strength to endure and get through the storm. So you got to praise him before, before you see the answer. I can assure you this, the answer is coming. I don't know how God's going to do it. I don't know what your situation is, but he will. I don't know all the particulars. I don't know all the details. All I know is we got a promise. If you call upon me, I will answer you. And you can bank on his promises, Amen. Point number three is we worship him because. Notice Matthew chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. It says, and when they saw the star, these are the wise men uh, they were referring to, by the way. They were filled with joy and they entered the house and they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In Bible times, when they would worship Often it was either two positions, typically. Usually one was either bowed down, as we saw there, and the other one was prostrate. Those are the main positions of worship in in Bible times. They either bow down or prostrate. And to worship is to give honor or adoration or give worth to God by acknowledging who he is. And it's funny because to the outsider, worship is a very foreign and even sometimes strange-looking act. And wait a second, how can you worship this God in the middle of your situation? Well, the reason why the wise men could do it is because they acknowledged and they understood who he is. Yeah, Israel is in this condition, but you don't know who he is. And when you understand who he is, then you can worship him. 
Here's here's the truth, folks. Everything God does or will do in your life flows out of who he is. And let 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 me help you understand this. If you need love, God is love. If you need mercy, God is merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. If you need grace, then he's gracious and he literally sits on the throne of grace. If you need salvation, his name is Jesus, which means the Lord saves. If you need provision, he's Jehovah Jireh, the God who will provide all of your needs. If you need healing, he's Jehovah Rapha. He's the one who's declared that I am the God who healeth thee. If you've sinned and need forgiveness, he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. If you're alone, he's the one who has declared, I will never leave you or forsake you. If you are faithless, then he's the one who is faithful. If you need peace, he's Jehovah Shalom, the Prince of Peace. He gives peace that transcends all understanding. If you're lost and need direction, he's the way. If you're confused, he's the truth. If you're broken, he's the God who makes all things new. If you need protection, then he's El Shaddai, the one who is the Lord. Lord Almighty who holds you in the palm of his hand and nothing will ever stretch, snatch you out of his hand. If you feel you're not good enough, he's the God who takes the foolish things of this world and uses them to confound the wise. If your soul is troubled in need of comfort, he's the God of all comfort who comforts you in all your troubles. If your situation feels too big, he's the God of that where nothing is impossible, who does exceedingly and abundantly above and beyond anything you could ever ask or think. And even if you die, He's the resurrection and the life. And though you were dead, yet shall you live. You need to understand who he is. And when you begin to acknowledge who he is, you begin to recognize that everything you need, it comes, it's it's connected to who he is. And I love it because when, when, when he told him who, when he told Moses to tell Pharaoh who sent you, he said, tell him I am sent you. You know what that means? That means that whatever your situation is, God is fully present in the situation with you. He is the great I am. Whatever you need, it falls, it flows out of who he is. That's the God we serve. Awesome God. And by the way, if you're here today and you're doubting who this Jesus is, let me give you one other scripture here. One day, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, whether you believe that or not today, I don't know. But I can promise you one day your knees will bow. And one day your mouth will confess. You may not believe it now, but that's okay. It will happen. And because they acknowledged who he was, they were able to worship him. And see, that's the beauty of worship. Worship is about acknowledging who he is because recognizing that everything that you need will flow out of who he is. And when Jesus becomes the object of your worship, then your hope is restored. Your joy is restored. Your peace is restored. And that's what he wants to do today. He wants you walking out with joy and hope and peace, understanding and knowing who he is. My fourth and and final point today is that God wants you to participate. There's a very interesting scripture in Luke. There's two of them, actually. Um, In Luke chapter 2, verse 19, it says, But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. This is verse 19. Another version of verse 19 would say, But Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. If you look further down in Luke, 
in, in chapter 2, verse 51, it says, Then he went to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. This is actually a little bit later on. And it says, But his mother, Mary, treasured all these things in her heart. Now, the Bible doesn't really tell us what Mary thought. So we don't really know what, what, what Mary thought. But if you think about who Mary was and if you think about the culture of the day, if you think about the time that she was living in, it was very, very possible that Mary could have been as young as 15 or 16 years old. Um, I mean, I'll tell you this. I have a, and, and, and it, was, it was very normal for 15 and 16-year-olds to get married in that day and even have children. And, um, you know, I have a six-year-old daughter. My prayer is not that she gets married at 16. <laughs> That's not what I'm believing God for. I rebuke you, Satan, in the name of Jesus. <laughs> no, no, no. But my thought is, what did Mary think? Imagine, you're 15, you're 16 years old, an angel of the Lord appears to you and says, you are going to carry the Messiah. I wonder if Mary thought, wait a second, me? Who am I? I don't deserve this honor to, to carry the Messiah. I mean, I'm just a little Israeli girl and no one knows who I am and my boo Joseph just proposed to me. I just want to get married and start our little family and, and do our little thing. Maybe she thought, God, I wonder if I'm even good enough for this task or, or this responsibility. Or maybe she said, God, are you really sure that I'm the one that you want to use for, for this purpose? Or me? How am I going to raise the Messiah? Imagine the pressure Mary must have felt. I have to raise Jesus? Oh, my gosh. I struggle raising my own kids. I can't imagine raising Jesus, you know? Well, first of all, I guess you don't have to worry about him doing anything wrong. He's, he's the son of God. <laughs> he's going to obey you, you know? He's not going to dishonor you. But by the time we get down to verse 51, I think that maybe what Mary pondered had changed a little bit because it was a little bit later on in, the, in, in, the, in his life. And maybe she thought, wow. I get to give birth and raise the Messiah. Maybe and all of a sudden, instead of a question, it became something of excitement that I get to participate in God's plan to restore Israel and to save mankind from their sins. Um, out of everybody on the face of the earth, God looked down and chose me. All of a sudden, maybe her hope shifted that what a great honor it is to participate in God's plan of salvation. And could it be that that hope and excitement sprung up in her heart when she began to understand that God was allowing her to participate in his great plan? And here's the truth today, folks. It's the same thing with you. God wants you. And you might say, well, I'm not good enough. That's okay. God still wants you. You might say, I'm too old. That's okay. God still wants you. You might say, but how could I do that? doesn't matter. God still wants you. There's this old picture um, when they used to recruit people for the military, this old Uncle Sam picture, and he would be pointing at people like that, right? I want you. Know this today. This is what God is saying. I want you. 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 I want you to participate in the plan that I have. I want you. 
But God, I've made a lot of mistakes. I still want you. But God, you don't know the things I've done. I still want you. But God, I don't have enough education. I still want you. But God, I don't have enough money. I still want you. But God, you don't know. I still want you. Doesn't matter where you've been. He still wants you. And if you don't know him today as Lord and Savior, he still wants you too. Because his love is great for you. God wants you to be an active participant in his plan of redemption. In fact, God has saved you not to be a spectator, but to be a participant. You know, I'm a big football fan. In fact, when we first came to this church, I used to think you had to be a Cowboys fan to be a member. (laughs) Which is a little bit of a problem because I'm a Giants fan, so. Amen. We need to get more Giants love up here, you know, too much Cowboy love in this place. In fact, when, when my wife and I, when we went on our first date, you know, I wasn't sure how it was going to work out. So um, I told her that on Sundays I go to church and I watch football. That's what I do in the fall. And so this date happened to be on a Sunday. So she was, you know, interrupting my football schedule. So, <laughs> so we went to the restaurant. They happened to have the game on. So I strategically made sure that I sat her in one spot and I sat in the other so I could see the game just in case the date didn't work out so well. I just wanted to be sure. Well, we just celebrated eight years of marriage, so I guess the date worked out pretty good, right? Um, Amen. And in a football game, what you'll notice is that there are spectators at the game. A typical NFL stadium can hold anywhere from 70 to 80,000 people, all spectators. Um, They're all watching the game. They could be cheering for one team or the other. And if you like a particular team, they're going to call you a fan. By the way, that's short for fanatic, by the way, just in case you didn't know that. You're a fan. And as a fan, you can make noise and you can wear the fan gear and you can even uh, root for and, and make a lot of noise and cheer for your team. And in fact, when you're a fan, you speak in terms of possession of your team. You don't say the New York Giants won or lost. You say my team won or we won or we lost right? That's the a, that's a, that's a language we use, right? When we win, we win. That's what we do, right? We lost. Some fans are so superstitious that if they're watching their team play and they're sitting in a certain seat and the team is doing well, they will stay in that seat because they believe if they move, the team's going to start doing bad. And don't look at me weird because I've done that myself, all right? <laughs> it doesn't seem to work very well, not, not this year at least. But here's the truth, folks. As a fan, you're not part of the team. As a fan, you don't determine the outcome of the game. The players on the field do that. You see, fans don't have the same investment that that players do. Players are practicing all week. They're, They're pouring out their blood, sweat, and tears in the game. They're pouring out everything that they can because they want to try to win that game. All fans do is stay on the sideline and cheer. In fact, on a football field, there's only 22 players on the field at any one given time. And all the fans are spectating around. Here's the truth, folks. God didn't save you to be a fan. He saved you to be a participant. And so it's great, maybe what Pastor Brandon is doing to youth, and you can say, go on, Pastor Brandon, I'm rooting for you. I'm a fan. God is saying, no, I don't want you to be a fan. I want you to be a participant. 
I want you to participate in the plan that I have to redeem mankind. I want you to participate in the preaching of the gospel and and to reaching the lost and to proclaiming my kingdom in the earth. I've called you and I've saved you not to be a fan, but to be a participant. And in fact, in sports teams, usually you have starters and you have bench players. And and what you want to be is you want to be a starter because the starters typically will play the most, they'll get the most playing time. And then if you're a professional athlete, the starters tend to make more money than the bench players, right? Well, on God's team, there are no bench players. Everybody's a starter. Now, we may have different responsibilities, that's fine, but everybody is a starter. Everybody's expected to play in the game. And here's the beautiful thing, just like Mary, you get to participate in God's great plan. And he wants you. For everybody here, he wants you. That is his heart for you. Notice what 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 says. I'm about to close here. It says, but you are the ones chosen by God. Let me say that again. If you are here today and Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you are the ones chosen by God. Here's what you were chosen for. You were chosen for the high calling of priestly work. Chosen to be a holy people. Chosen to be God's instruments to do his work and speak out for him. Chosen to tell others of the night and day difference he has made for you. Chosen to show that you have gone from nothing to something. From being rejected to being accepted. God wants you today. If you're here and you're not doing God's will... God wants you. If you're here and you don't know him, God wants you. His plan for you is great. You are part of the team. God wants you. And when you recognize this, when you understand this, what you'll begin to see, you can start, start playing if you don't mind. Um, what you will see is like Elizabeth, something leaps inside of you. You see, when you recognize that God wants you, what that means is that gives your life purpose now. And now you have meaning And now you have a reason to to live and a reason for hope and a reason for excitement because you are participating in God's great plan. And he wants you. And I would ask or pray today that your response would be like Mary's response in Luke chapter 1, verse number 38. And I'll close with this. Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. Would you all stand to your feet?